Welcome. Today I'm going to introduce the Pomology Society, and I'm going to tell you what incorporation means to us. Since this is the Pomology Society's first blogcast, I'll explain what you can expect here. I'll tell you a little about myself and give you an orientation. Ready? You've discovered the Pomology Society podcast. Join us on our journey as we explore the maximization of awesomeness one ray of light at a time. And now, the host of today's episode, the Pomology Society's founder, James Carvin. The Pomology Society is on the verge of incorporation. As its founder, it's my job to communicate all that the Pomology Society is, and what it's not, and why we're doing what we're doing. And since this is our very first blogcast, introductions are in order. I'll give you a rundown on what to expect. First, the format, and some housekeeping. During our first season, this is going to be a solo blogcast. I recommend you subscribe and listen to each episode in the order that they are released. As we begin, new episodes will come out every other Thursday at 5 in the morning, Eastern Standard Time. Once we get enough supporters, I'll move on to once a week if we can. Next season, I'll start bringing on guests. That's the plan. A solo cast in Season 1 will then help everyone catch up on what the Pomology Society blogcast is all about. Episodes will generally last about 27 minutes. If the subject requires a little extra time, I'll announce that up front. The current episode is one of those. It'll take about 37 minutes to give you a fair introduction and orientation. Most programs will be about 10 minutes shorter than this one, so that's the plan. For this show, I do prefer the term blogcast to podcast. That's because my transcripts have helpful little charts and images and links in them. They're like a blog and a podcast transcript combined. When you visit Pomology.com to find and share our transcripts, be sure to sign up for the Pomology 101 course. It's free, and if you pass the Pomology 101 course, I'll send you a Pomology top hat. Cool, huh? Pomology top hats have symbols that are sewn into them representing your roles and accomplishments in the Pomology Society. We're not some esoteric order, though. Everything's out in the open for the world to see, but you do have to earn your widgets if you want to be recognized. So, what's Pomology? People ask me what Pomology is all the time. If you got this far, then you might be aware that it's short for Poly Astronomically Maximized Awesomeology. Now, that may not help much. It sounds sort of like astrology or astronomy or maybe palm reading, but it's totally not any of that. So take note of the fact that there's no L before the M in Pomology. It's pronounced Pomology, not palmology. Also, I said astronomically, not astrologically. Polyastronomically maximized awesomology. And it's quite a mouthful, and it says a lot. It's best to take pomology from the last word and work back to the first word. If you can't remember the whole thing that pomology stands for, here's a shortcut. Pomology is the philosophy of awesomeness. The rest of the words are modifiers. It's awesomeology. Awesomeology is everything that could be cool. Pomology is the logic of awesomeness. Now, if you take awesomeness to the max, that's perfection. Awesomeness to the max, maximized awesomeness, is the thing there couldn't be anything better than. 
whatever that is. And by definition, that would be perfection. But hold everything right there. A lot of people don't like the word perfection, and for good reason. Pomology may well include the logic of perfection as part of what it is, but I avoid the word perfection these days. Pomology isn't asking anyone to try to be perfect. That's not even possible. A person who tries to be perfect is called a perfectionist. Usually those people are very unhappy. They might need therapy, maybe some meds. Trying to be perfect is absolutely not what pomology is about. So are we clear on that? To maximize our own awesomeness, we ask ourselves some helpful questions. If you can be the best you that you can be, then that's a very worthy goal. So we can talk about various ways to be your personal best, as I share my own journey and vision with you. I also use the word philosophy. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. Pomology is a philosophical system. It's the philosophy of awesomeness. But is philosophy awesome? Some people think so. It can be. But to maximize its awesomeness, I think it's important to direct this blogcast to a broad audience. People schooled in philosophy are welcome here, but I won't be talking to philosophers alone. I'm looking for people who want to improve their lives and share a better world. I like leaders. I might inspire you to become one or help you to tweak your own already existing awesomeness. I'm directing this blogcast towards non-philosopher type people who have leadership potential. Does that describe you? I'm guessing that for no other reason than you follow podcasts that you make good use of your time at the least because you do that or maybe read blogs and because you were curious about the word pomology, I'm guessing you're probably above average in intelligence, but I won't assume that you have any background in philosophy. You might have thought the word had something to do with astrology or palm reading or some occult science or practice, right? It's not any of those things, but it is a form of philosophy. So you will get a little bit of traditional philosophy here, and I'll explain any necessary philosophical industry jargon as I go, but my clear objective is to explain awesomeology and nothing more. I think a lot of people would be interested in this topic. Pretty smart people, really. Does that make sense? Now, awesomeology refers to several different things. When awesomeness is maximized, if we're talking about you, then that's one thing. If we're talking about a country or an economy or the world, well, that's something quite different, but it's also under the same heading of awesomeology. And if we're talking about even bigger questions, like how the universe might ideally be designed, well, that's where the logic of perfection starts stepping in. What is perfection? The definition is pretty simple. Perfection is that than which there could be nothing greater, right? Well, for that than which there could be nothing better, nothing greater, nothing more awesome, to be real, wouldn't that mean that every good possible thing would have to be part of reality? That's a logical question. And it leads to many others. So that's why I call it the logic of perfection. You take the definition of perfection and you think about its implications if it is a reality. So if every good possible thing had to be real, could all that goodness be contained in just one universe? I think the answer to that question is no. I don't think every good possibility could fit into a single universe. I think that for perfection to be real, a whole lot of universes would be required. For that sort of ultimate scale awesomeness to be maximized, it would have to be poly-astronomical. It would require many universes, many astronomies. Poly means many, hence our name, poly-astronomically maximized awesomeology, pomology for short. 
Pomology involves both this grand scale type thinking through what maximized awesomeness might be, and small scale thinking, such as asking, what's the best way for me to respond to a specific situation? Should I send that text? Should I eat that ice cream? Maybe it's something larger, like, should I marry this person? Or should student loans be forgiven? It would also involve world-scale thinking, like, what's the best solution for Ukraine? Or, what's the best political or economic system? Or it might involve ethical questions, like, should we eat meat? Along those lines, do you know what a pamelonomy is? Stick around and you'll find out. We talk about pamology here, which includes the subject of pamelonomies. Awesomeology is about you being as awesome as you can possibly be. Maximized awesomeness is your best, the whole world's best, and also some theoretical things like how do you measure that? And exactly what is that than which there could be nothing greater? Would that be God? Is there a God? How would you describe God if God was maximized awesomeness? What attributes would that sort of God have? Philosophy has been talking about the possibility of God for a long time, and pomology will too. A lot of philosophers have concluded that there can't be any such thing as God because they see evil in the universe. They don't think God would allow that if God were real. Do you think they're right? We'll talk about that. So, one of the things we'll talk about is God. But I need to make sure you're aware that pomology is not a religion. There's a difference between faith and reason. You could be a Catholic pomologist or a Buddhist pomologist, a Muslim pomologist, an atheist pomologist, or any sort of pomologist. Pomology talks about God in terms of the maximization of awesomeness. It isn't attempting to validate any particular tradition or set of beliefs. It isn't basing its reason on any set of scriptures or tradition. If any one faith tradition is correct, then, well, that's fantastic. Pomology may just support it, but then again, it may also question it. Now, among many other things to ask, pomology asks you, what's the best thing that you can conceive of? What is perfection? Is there any basis for thinking perfection might be real? It also asks things about practical, everyday things in this world, too. How can we maximize our awesomeness? So are those subjects you think you might be interested in? Well then, maybe you've come to the right place because that's what pomology is. So now that you know about it, what's the difference between pomology and the pomology society? Well, the difference is incorporation, our subject for today. I'm the founder of both pomology as a philosophical system and the pomology society, so you probably want to know something about me as well. I'll give you some of my own background as we go. First, let's talk about the Pomology Society. The Pomology Society is a nonprofit corporation, or will be as soon as we seal the deal on incorporation in the coming days. It's dedicated to seeing the values of Pomology maximized in practice with the combined power of a lot of people. Nonprofit corporations, public charities, are useful in many ways for achieving great things. The philosophy of awesomeness in action is about doing things, not just talking about them. We aren't armchair critics of the world. The Pomology Society will strive to be and to support the awesomeness of which it speaks. And as such, the Pomology Society is designed to be more than a philosophical society. If you'll read its mission statement, you'll see that the Pomology Society is called to be an incubator. 
providing material support, funding, and volunteer help for worthy projects. The goal is not just to talk about the maximization of awesomeness, but to do all we can to participate in making it happen. So that's what the Pomology Society is, and I'm its founder. You're probably curious about me. Now, since we're going to talk about God as maximized awesomeness, you might be interested to know about my faith tradition, so I'll start there. What are my biases as a philosopher? Well, like most people, I grew up with some amount of religion around me. My father was Catholic, and my mother was Presbyterian. They argued openly about their faith in front of the children, so I got a strong dose of what divided reformers and evangelicals from Catholics when I was young, and the fact that my parents disagreed made me realize it was normal to have choices to make about religion. My parents' ongoing open debate caused me to ask some deep questions that many people never ask. I often asked if either of them was right, or anyone at all, and I still do. I felt obligated to explore Eastern religious traditions, and I absorbed as much as I could. Of course, it would take a lot of lifetimes to explore every faith. I'm always learning. Gradually, though, I discovered what made the most sense to me personally. I did compare the Rig Veda with the Bible, with the Quran, and so on, and I spent a lot of time practicing meditation, not just reading about things. And I later participated in sacramental traditions, liturgical traditions, and I was considering other things like biological evolution and cosmology and critical interpretation of the sacred texts. I continue to question things, not always having certainty, and I still do. I tend to be agnostic today about religious denominations and biblical fundamentalism, but I'm a theist at heart. Basically, what I do is I place some matters into the category of logical necessity, those things I can be certain about, and other things, such as which religious expression is true, I place into the category of faith. I can't prove Jesus rose from the dead or that he was God incarnate, or that the Bible is inerrant, or that the story of the flood is true, or that Muhammad was the only right prophet sent by God. Those are matters of faith. I can choose to believe them. If I've seen miracles, that might affect my beliefs. Those things I may have seen with my own eyes do have an effect on me. They provide a measure of empirical evidence of things to me personally. One of the things to sort out is what the implication is of the experience of what seems like a miracle, and how that should affect what I believe. We can talk about that, too. Well, you probably know there's a huge difference between head knowledge and the knowledge of the heart, right? For me, both of those things grew together. I did experience what seemed like miracles to me. They've been awesome, but they aren't very useful for conveying what's true. If there isn't some scientific or psychological explanation for those things, it's still very personal. It isn't something I can share very easily, and it doesn't necessarily follow that if something that seems like a miracle takes place in a specific religious context, that that validates that religious tradition or its context. I had my first profound religious experiences when I was in high school and college in the 1970s. I was studying music composition at the University of South Carolina and had a theory that music was connected to a spiritual reality that could be tweaked to maximize awesomeness. 
I remember going through a dry spell in my writing and contemplating where thought itself comes from, where anything comes from, including life itself. What if every moment was just made fresh out of pure creativity in the mind of God just a moment ago, and this just happens to be one expression of the mind of God? What is inspiration? As a music composition major, I was fascinated by Indian and the Western modes as well, and the God experiences that I had listening to Bach, and the songs of worship that I experienced in a Catholic charismatic conference. A wide variety of ways to experience God in music in my life. I practiced kundalini yoga after college and read a number of books by Bubba Freejohn, so you might want to know that. Shortly after I graduated, I met a Catholic girl that I got engaged to, and that led me to my conversion to Catholicism. It wasn't the most um, religiously driven conversion (laughs) since the girl was involved, right? She wasn't the one, though, and it turns out that I was more interested, after all, in her religion than I was in her, so things flipped. I left her as I attended a regional Catholic seminary from 1982 to 1986, discerning at that time whether I should become a priest. I kept sensing that I had a vocation, something to do with what I was learning, but turned out it wasn't the priesthood. Then I met the woman that I would marry in 1989. She sang in the choir at an Assemblies of God church, which is Pentecostal. I convinced her to convert to Orthodox Christianity with me in 1991 as I finished up my master's degree in theology and served as an adjunct professor in a very controversial seminary, the St. Michael Academy of Eschatology in West Palm Beach, Florida. We used words like orthocostal and pentadox to describe whatever it was that we were. (laughs) We embraced everything. We were critical of everything. I still don't have a PhD, but I'm a lifelong student and have a total of about nine years of postgraduate education, 25 or so total in my life. I'm currently enrolled as a student at Arizona State working on yet one more degree. This one is in interdisciplinary studies, organizational leadership, and philosophy. Anyway, a lot of years of prayerful thought went into all of this. I developed the philosophical system that I call Pomology now over the course of about maybe 40 years. But the name Pomology itself didn't pop up until about 2017 or so. It became clear to me long ago that the purpose of life is awesomeness. And the maximization of awesomeness requires many universes, not just one. So that should be enough background on what pomology is as a philosophical system for now. But believing and doing are, of course, two very different aspects of life. So now, as I share my own journey some more, let's talk about what we're doing. I want you to know what our intentions are by incorporating and seeking that 501c3 status as a public charity. To do this, I want to ask you a question. When you consider your own life, what's the most good that you could personally do in this world before you die? Have you considered that question much? As I've attempted to get a clearer picture of my own vocation, I've asked myself this question many, many times. What is the most good I can do on this earth before I die? Now, I've been an Uber driver between other jobs during my life and also driven for Lyft and Yellow Cab and done many other driving jobs between real jobs and could tell you many stories after giving over 30,000 rides to about 100,000 people. Not all are talkers, but many are, and a lot of the conversations have been about pomology. 
people ask me about my hat. And the next thing you know, we're talking about what the most awesome possible things there could be are. A lot of passengers are moral relativists. They don't have an absolute sense of right or wrong, good or evil. Some might ask whether the word good has any real meaning at all. The question, what is the most good you can do before you die, sets off a trigger word for them. They don't like the word good. Replacing this word with awesome works a lot better. So if you're of that mindset, I can rephrase the question. What are the most awesome things you could do before you die? Now, as for existence of good and evil, if they doubt there's any such thing, what they're really saying is that it would be perfectly fine if I hack into their bank account and take all their money because there's no such thing as good or evil, right? Well, okay, maybe not. Maybe they'll draw the line on harming others. It's a matter of being civil and living and making society work for everyone, right? But if being civil is good, then there's that word good again. So I detect a value there, some judgment that we can all agree on, that there are some things that are more desirable than others. World peace, for instance. If a value like world peace is just a human construct, then why do we seek it? So, no, I won't accept that there's no such thing as right or wrong, good or evil, better or worse, and so on. I know it's true, and so do they. Now, the subject of what constitutes right and wrong goes beyond what I want to talk about today, but we all know it as ethics and morality. And when I ask the question, how could you do the most good before you die, I'm asking an ethical question. But it's more than ethics, it's aesthetics. Ethics asks what is right and wrong. Aesthetics asks what's the most beautiful. I'm sure you know that neither ethics nor aesthetics are easy subjects. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And maybe, parallel to that, right and wrong, good and evil, better and worse, are also in the eye of the beholder. Unquestionably, we all have our own ideas about both, yet we seldom doubt the existence of either one. We don't say there's no such thing as beauty just because we don't agree on what's the most beautiful. So in asking the question, what is the most good you can do in this world before you die? I'm asking a very personal question. I'm asking you to answer it for yourself. It isn't about some set of rules that would apply to every single person. It's your question. I'm guessing that you have some idea of what the answer to that question would be for you because you're a podcast listener and because you read my blogs. You're an exceptional person. So there's a lot of people who have never asked that question. I'm sure you're aware. For me, I decided to write down all the things that I thought would do the most good in this world before I died. I looked around me and saw things that weren't working, things that I might be able to fix. I figured that if I wrote down my ideas and then asked for help implementing them, that would be a great first step towards making them happen. I was very concise. Pretty good idea, right? But writing the ideas down wasn't enough. I wasn't going to let the ideas get buried in some pile of papers somewhere. I was going to make sure that things happened. They were world-improving ideas. I was going to make sure they took place in the best possible way. They got acted upon. So I put my list of things to do to improve the world before I died in the most conspicuous place that I could think of. I posted them publicly on my website at jamescarvin.com right on the front page of the website, in fact. So, this was the list of the things I was going to attempt to do before I died. It's still there to this day. Check it out. Each one of those ideas fixed a problem that I saw in this world. If you haven't done this, I highly recommend you try. Don't just write down your goals. Stick your neck out publicly and publish them for everyone to see. So that's what I did, and I want to see your list, too. 
Now, the next step is incorporation, but that's not as easy as it sounds. So today I want to share my journey of incorporation with you. It isn't just the incorporation of the Pomology Society. It's a summary of all I've been telling you about and how that all turned into what's becoming the Pomology Society now. Incorporation means people working together as one. As a founder of a concept, it means releasing that concept to other people to see through into reality. Great ideas are seldom things people can do alone. Now, in my life, if I failed, it's been a failure to surround myself with people who shared my vision and were able to help. Now, sharing a vision is no easy task. The more elaborate a vision is, the harder it actually is to convey. If I see in a lot of detail, I still have to somehow simplify what I see so that other people can digest what I have to share. Digestion begins, I suppose, with nibbling. Sharing isn't that easy. Have you ever seen something with great clarity and depth? Then as soon as you go to share your idea with someone, they have their own idea about what it could be. Did they lose interest in what you saw before you finished sharing it all? Did they veer off onto their own track? Did they interrupt? Well, you adjusted, right? People actually have a lot to contribute. It's a good thing that they do this. I love hearing their ideas. I'll consider them and see if there's a fit between our respective visions. Gradually, eventually, I'll also want to share the entirety of my own thoughts. Not every type of thought fits nicely into a soundbite that can be consumed in a single conversation. Those who follow my blogs and podcasts and take my courses will eventually see the big picture that I see, or a little better anyway, the thing that I would call maximized awesomeness. And then there's you. I'd like to hear from you. I love knowing how other people see the world and its potential. Incorporation means working together towards a common corporate goal. It refers to a body of people, a corpus. When we incorporate, we come together as one. There's a good chance that I don't even know what our potential might be together until we start to talk, right? Your vision plus mine might just involve a very symbiotic awesomeness, couldn't it? Let's combine our ideas and explore how they could be integrated. So this works in several ways. Vertically, on a podcast or blog platform, gives those like me who take the time the opportunity to share the entirety of a vision from start to finish. Horizontally, it gives you and other people the chance to join in and to add your own perspectives to any part of that vision, sharing all of your own thoughts. Others will want to add their own input. Together, we can be a very powerful force, one with a lot of eyes, many minds working as one, many hearts beating together, changing the world, maximizing awesomeness. Each of us also has a unique journey, and I look forward to hearing your story. As for me, I come from a line of entrepreneurs, but my father lost his money, and I didn't have enough family and friends' money available to get any of the world-changing ideas that are listed at jamescarvin.com started. So, so far, my story is a story of an entrepreneur wannabe. The Pomology Society, as an incubator, is designed to address that precise problem. I recently went through my old tax files as far back as I'd kept them and dug up almost 30 different business cards, each representing an enterprise that I tried to get off the ground. I reflected back on my life and I thought about how different the world would be today if I had succeeded in even one of those ventures. And as it stands, none of the businesses that I wanted to start had sufficient capital to get started. So the old adage, it takes money to make money, it tends to be true. And I know this painfully. I'm sure building an empire from scratch can be done. We always hear rags to riches stories, but try as I did, that never worked for me. 
Now, a very typical problem that I encountered was a certain three-way interplay between investors, developers, and the building of the prototypes. The developers won't build prototypes without cash. The investors won't provide cash without teams that can build products. And at a bare minimum, they want to see working prototypes. There are two main workarounds for that sort of circular problem. First, you could try to develop a prototype yourself if you could. Now, personally, that's a specialty that would require more time than I ever have. And there's always a learning curve, and I always had bills to pay. It might be something that you could do. Who knows? Just not me. Now, second, you might talk some developer friends into working together on a shared equity basis. I really like that idea, and I've tried it a number of times. Unfortunately, it has yet to work for me personally either. But hey, never give up. Let me take a step back and emphasize the impact that new businesses can have in the world and bring all this back to the question that I asked. How can you or how can I do the most good in this world before I die? There are lots of different types of businesses. They don't all have the same nature. A lot of people assume that the purpose of business is to make money. For some people, it is. Maybe most people. For me, I've always asked myself what my purpose in life was. It's to maximize awesomeness. If I could create the type of business that would have a positive impact in the world, then I would leverage the power of incorporation to make huge changes. For some businesses, it might seem that the world could do without what they do and be no worse off. But even managing a net profit from a business with little world impact directly or from a job or through savings for that matter can be used to improve the world. A little bit of money can go a long way. Now, for me personally, I'd like to see a direct positive impact in what I do. As a music composition major, I always looked at the creative arts as ways to add beauty to the world. I'd be willing to earn very little if I was contributing to the world's beauty. Then when I graduated, life sort of took me by surprise. There wasn't any market for my music. I took a job at a bank. Now, while there was certainly some value in helping people save their money and earn a few dollars in interest, I have to confess that I was very deeply frustrated by the fact that nothing I was doing was producing anything that would have a direct impact on anyone. I couldn't see the fruit of it all. I had this deep inner need to create something that people could experience directly. I was just wired that way. I'll skip the details. By way of orientation here, though, I just want to point out that many entrepreneurs, including myself, are passionate about what they see, not because of money, but because of impact. It all comes down to the way they answer that question. How can I do the most good in this world before I die? Or if you prefer, how can I maximize my awesomeness? A profitable business may be an essential ingredient in making awesomeness happen, but it isn't the end game. Positive impact is an impact that won't exist without profit. Now, some people might suppose that a nonprofit corporation doesn't require profit because of the name nonprofit, but that's not true. The Pomology Society will be a nonprofit corporation when it incorporates, but what nonprofit status means is simply that there are no shareholders. In other words, if we take in $3 million and spend only $2 million in a given year, nobody gets to keep the extra million bucks. That money goes into the kitty for the next year to be spent on the programs that the Pomology Society supports according to its mission. There are all sorts of charitable organizations that have been incorporated, and each has their unique mission. The ones that we're most familiar with directly impact the homeless, the hungry, or the sick. They help prisoners get back on their feet. They provide services for substance abusers, for mental health, 
They fund medical research or education. They improve the environment. They support local houses of worship and political causes. They ask for your financial support in thousands of ways. You hear them make their appeal. Something strikes your heart and you reach into your wallet, right? Now, few people really stop to think about what would happen if high-impact for-profit companies were funded by those same charity dollars, high-impact ones. What would happen if those with a mind to consider how they might have the greatest impact in the world received the funds that they needed? For one thing, it would enable good-hearted people to give more to traditional charities, the ones we just talked about. Now, I think it would be easy to show that whenever the economy is strong, philanthropy increases, not just proportionally, but exponentially. And vice versa, when the economy is weak, philanthropy drops very significantly, because charity, after all, is usually generated from excess disposable income. How well the economy is doing will depend on which politician that you ask, but you could also use the appeals that you get from your favorite charity in your inbox every day as a measure of the economy's strength. When the economy's down, they hurt, so they start sending out more emails. So let me sum up. I pointed to the pain point in getting businesses started. You can't build a prototype without developers. You can't hire developers without cash. You can't raise cash without a prototype. Can't, can't, can't. While some people have managed to pass through that hurdle, have you ever stopped to think about how many high-impact businesses that would do worlds of good never came to exist because a silent majority of entrepreneur wannabes like me were never able to attract the talent that they needed to realize their ideas, to make them real? It's hard to put a number on this, but assuming there are many people like myself, I'd be willing to guess it's something near 99 out of 100. In other words, for every one business that went from concept to reality, there were a hundred that went from concept to the recycle bin. Imagine how much philanthropy there would be if the economy was literally a hundred times stronger. It means financing the arts. It means financing medical research. It means ending homelessness, hunger, and disease. It means addressing environmental issues and improving education, and so much more for the maximization of the world's awesomeness. And that's why, in asking myself how I could do the most good in this world before I die, I wind up with a list of business ideas. In conceiving what the Pomology Society could do as a corporation, the answer was as clear as day to me. It could finance programs like those listed at jamescarvin.com and provide the talent needed to turn those concepts into reality. So in future Pomology Society blogcasts, in addition to talking about awesomeology generally, I'll describe each of these programs in detail and we'll talk about ways that we can work together to maximize our impact. Ciao! Thank you for listening to the Pemology Society podcast. Transcripts of our podcast may be found at our website at pemology.com. We love it when you share them. Want to dig deeper? Complete our Pemology 101 course. It's free to subscribers, and you just may earn a top hat. If it would be good, it's true. true.